It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. And true currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the right. And there we are. And uh, we always have to uh, make sure we get a, a shot of Basil the dog, Legata the yep. cat, before. You know, it's sort of there's the, the good luck charms uh, for the show. And uh, good morning. How you doing, Peggy? Good morning. Great. Looking outside going, hmm, it's a steel mm, gray day. It looks snowy. Yeah, it's, uh, it is just, um, we're supposed to have some snow, a little bit, uh, by Tuesday, I guess. Uh, not much. I mean, yeah. probably won't even get it here. So It'll I'm be not the swirly stuff going uh, around. Uh, well, uh, Rick said wet snow, um, so we'll 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 see what happens. But uh, and of course, this is uh, a holiday week, mm-hmm. and a lot of folks uh, are going to be doing what I hope they don't do. <laughs> you know, I've been I've been thinking about this. Like, I wanted to open the show, and I know folks are watching, and and I and I can see you're on the restream. Uh, chat room yep. and uh, Audrey's and your, already your up there. Your video was frozen, by the way. Oh no, it did that earlier. It did that earlier. I might have to uh, uh, bring this back up. Oh my goodness. Okay, well, uh, I'm not sure what's going on today um, because it, it, I'm probably not going to get it back unless I, uh, I reset Uh-oh. this. So, uh, um, well, you're. You know, at least you're not making a funny face while you're frozen. That's um, a good thing. That yeah. <laughs> why don't we uh, Why don't we get a camera here that's uh, uh, not frozen, and I can pop that up and uh, and see what happens. Uh, see now, I can I can see myself, and if I pop that into here, let's see. There, we there are. you are. See, how about that, huh? But I hope Problem it does solved. Well, but it's uh, well, you know, it's always an issue if if it starts very, freezing. Very quiet. Yeah. Well, and now I'm going to have to add uh, that camera to uh, all of the other settings that I had Uh-oh. here. Um, that's okay. That's okay. We'll we will we will deal with it as we need to. Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. Uh, and as I was going to say earlier, uh, I know that there are folks who want to celebrate the holiday. Uh, Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, my advice is if you can, don't. I mean, celebrate the holiday. Just mm-hmm. it's, don't it's, travel. It, it, don't travel. I've been watching the news and people lining up and getting, uh, trying to get tested 
for COVID and they can't get tested because everybody wants to do it at once so that they, and the problem is the testing can be negative in the morning and positive in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of go, uh, that's crazy. So why would you do that? Um, just keep everybody safe. And in, in about, I'm thinking in about two months, we're, I'm hoping we're going to be on our, let you know, get a ding there on our way to uh, a change in this uh, situation. So um, just be safe, everybody, please. Just be as safe as you can. Uh, on today's show, well, as you know, uh, Bartlett Tree Experts is, uh, is a fabulous sponsor uh, for the show. We can't thank them enough uh, for uh, keeping us uh, on live streaming. I was going to say mm-hmm. on the air. This is kind of on the air. This is the air. This is Different the air. I, air. I, is there Ethernet? There's air. There's air around us. <laughs> Um, and, uh, so it's always, uh, good to bring them on to the program to, uh, answer questions. Uh Oh, and I've lost, You're froze. am I frozen? <laughs> oh, yep. we, we are having issues this morning. This is, uh, this is something else. Okay. And Chad, Chad's gone. So what you're going to have to do is find him. I'm going to reload myself, uh, one more time and, uh, and, uh, uh, and see what's going on here. Um, nope, that's not the one I want. I want this one. Let's load that. Boom. Let's bring that in. And let's pop that in here and go live. Uh, Chad Rigsby is uh, is the uh, Bartlett expert who is with us this morning. He's a research scientist and technical support specialist with the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratories at the Morton Arboretum. And uh, we will get him on here um, as quickly as we can and uh, get your tree care questions ready because it is that time of year. Oh, and there he is. Um, I think yeah, I just can- texted him. Okay, great. So let's, let's pop him up there. there. Let's pop some audio on. Uh, Chad, it's good to see you. Thank you for being with us this morning. Yeah, good to be with you. Um, uh, and now that you are with us, and, and, and we do appreciate that. Uh, tell us about your work. What is it you do at the Morton Arboretum uh, specifically? Yeah, so uh, I... Uh, research scientist uh, and technical support specialist with Bartlett Tree Experts, but I work out of the Morton Arboretum. Um, And there at the Morton, we do research and outreach uh, to promote good practices and uh, uh, research into proper pest management and um, other, other things all centered around trees and and shrubs woody plants well and uh of course uh i assume because you're at the morton arboretum you have the resources of the morton arboretum as well at your disposal the the bartlett tree experts and the morton arboretum have always just been like peanut butter and jelly uh we (laughs) we're we're big fans of each other we share a lot of values and it was sort of a, a natural fit for uh, one of our lab staff at Bartlett, uh, myself, to be uh, stationed uh, or work out of the Morton. And the the spirit of that is so that we can uh, grow our partnership even more, and specifically from a a science perspective and an outreach perspective. So I collaborate with, uh, with folks at the Center for Tree Science and and uh, the the 
diagnostic clinic there. Um, it's it's a great relationship uh, that we have, and and it's a it's a quite an honor to be be able to work with those folks and and strengthen that bond. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you sent me a ton of stuff when we said uh, we, we need to talk, <laughs> and you're, Peggy's laughing because she saw the email as well, um, and. Uh, uh, I thought, well, let's talk about as much of it as we can. But now but what I'm going to do is I'm going to sucker punch you here because you Uh-oh. sent me you, you sent me all this stuff about the things you've been working on. And what I'm interested in is what in the last, say, month has come across your desk that you're saying, wow, this is really, really interesting. Um, you know, because you, you sent me stuff about diseases, about drought, about uh, over uh, saturated soils and a few other things. Uh, but what's come across that's made you say, this is interesting and, uh, I want to study it more. So I think you're telegraphing your punches there a little bit. (laughs) If I'm, if I'm uh, not mistaken. Oh, well, Uh, you know, no, I wasn't thinking of that, but you know what, if you want to go down that road, that's, that's fine with me. Let's, let's do that. Okay. I know what, uh, you're you're talking about. (laughs) And, and because uh, Chad wrote to me the other day, actually, uh, Scott Jameson, also from Bartlett Tree Expert, said, uh, Chad, you might want to discuss. Yeah, give Scott, Scott gets a ding. He, he's watching on Periscope right by, yeah, right oh, now. He's on oh, Periscope. Good for him. Scott. Okay. Scott. Hi, Scott. Um, and uh, Scott said, well, what about light and, and conifers? And I said, uh, could you please explain what that is? So, Chad, let's talk about this because this actually is kind of fascinating. And I think one of our listeners in particular, our viewers, Audrey Fisher, is going to be really interested in this. So tell us about the, those studies. So uh, the, the, the best way I can describe this is uh, over the past year or two, the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory has been notified of about a dozen cases uh, at this point of instances where landscape lighting had appeared to injure specifically spruce trees, um, mostly Norway spruce and some, some instances of blue spruce. And so this was, this was a pattern, um, and patterns are interesting. And so our lab uh, began asking questions of what, what, is the com- what are the commonalities between these occurrences? Uh, first of all, are, is, is what is being reported to us actually real? Uh, we need to go and investigate and confirm these instances. And if they are real, what are the conditions that create, uh, that generate these occurrences? And that has led to uh, our, our interest in uh, landscape lighting that is specifically LED lights that uh, most of the time these are occurrences where this is hard to explain. Can you tell? So, so when you, when you walk up to a tree that is, that is impacted by this, where this occurrence has happened, 
the the injury to the spruce is can be characterized as brown dead desiccated needles dried up dead needles and the injury pattern on the tree is exactly where the light shines from the landscape lighting mm. so our interest in landscape lighting the the type of lighting in a lot of, in all these instances was led lighting and so we're in the process now of trying to uh, do experiments to basically see if we can replicate these types of injuries. Um, what sort of uh, distance from the plant does it, uh, do these injuries occur? Uh, what type of uh, settings as far as the length of the time that the lights are on uh, during the night? Is it all, are these lights on all night? Are these lights on only a portion of the night? Uh, what sort of color temperature these lights are. If you're familiar with color temperature, this is um, basically how bright white or how warm glow yellow the light is. Uh, so we're just in the middle of trying to wrap our heads around this and see if we can reproduce it and see if we can get hard data uh about these occurrences that's uh that's interesting because and one of the things you mentioned uh in going back and forth is okay you're you're dealing with leds and in the past there had been some research that that indicated that when you had incandescence maybe the heat from the incandescent light was causing problems on on some trees right correct yes the the other these instances where there it's a non-led light where it's fluorescent or whatever, uh, a lot of those lights, well, those lights generate heat. And those instances have been, have been, usually are fairly easy to dismiss as, well, the, the light was situated very close to the plant and it was probably just heat that injured the plant. But LED lights, if you're not familiar with them, do not generate heat. So these are instances where it is purely the light that is causing injury to the plant. And, and you wanted to be really careful, and, and here's the caveat for this, and, and I want to make sure that people understand. There are no studies on this. This is just a phenomenon that you have detected recently, and you don't know if there's anything to it. So we have to be really careful when we talk about this. And I don't want people running out and saying, hey, if you put LED lights yeah. uh, it's out there, it's going to hurt your plant. There needs to be more study on this. Uh, and that's what you guys are. That's what you do. You, you study these phenomenon and uh, hope that uh, you can uh, figure out what it is that's that's causing this this injury um have i have i got that right you're absolutely right we we want to be very careful and and mm -hmm. just like you said you know don't run out panic uh, uh turn rip out all your led light landscape lighting uh let's let's do this research let's get our heads around it uh first absolutely yeah, as, as scott just said follow the science Follow if, yes, follow the science, but it is worth mentioning because, um, and, and I mentioned Audrey Fisher, who's who's watching the program. Uh, we have talked about lighting 
on our planet and and the the bombardment of light the fact that we cannot see stars in our skies anymore and what kind of an effect does that have uh on 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 human beings on other animals on plants um a lot of that is still being studied we know that there are medical uh effects so um it's uh the when you mentioned this i kind of went hmm Oh, and there I go. I froze again. So I'm going <laughs> to pop you back up there. So, you know, you know and, and I'm telling you right now, my image just keep, keeps freezing. So I'm just going to leave if I have to and not keep trying to put it up there. I'll, I'll put it up from time to time. We'll just deal with it. Uh, but this is so fascinating given how little we know about um, the effects of light. And we're just uh, figuring out about light pollution on our planet that I think it bears watching and don't you uh, chad absolutely uh there's there are uh there's a lot of research that what comes to mind uh immediately is the impact of of artificial lights on birds mm-hmm. uh there's a lot of research that has happened and is happening there but there are whole groups of organisms and and i would say plants are probably one of those um where our understanding of of uh, unnatural light levels, uh, we we really don't know what that's doing uh, to mm-hmm. the plant. We know that uh, the plants pick up on what's called photoperiod, and if if your audience isn't familiar with that, it's it's basically the, the amount of day where there's daylight of a twenty four hour day. Uh, longer longer days in the summer, shorter day daylight periods in the winter, and if that photo period is disrupted, they they rely on that photo period to uh, do things like go into dormancy during the winter. So if that's disrupted, uh, we don't know what that would do. We we could have hypotheses, but yeah, a lot of unknowns. Yeah, so uh, that is something that I'm looking forward to hearing more about. Um, and that's really all we need to say about it right now because we don't, we don't, you don't have much. And yeah. I know you were kind of loath to, 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 to bring it up and go too much into detail because you don't have detail. Um, so we will leave it at that. Uh, Bartlett and Morton Arboretum and others are, are looking at this particular phenomenon and hoping that, uh, they can understand more about it as, as time moves on. So let's, let's look at the year, um, the year in review. Here we go uh, into just about to hit December, um, wow. and uh, I know, and uh, COVID made it a, an odd year as well. How did that uh, affect your studies, Chad? Yeah, there were <laughs> uh, the, the way that our research lab works is probably how you would think. Where uh, at the end of the growing season, we have a a me a huddle. Uh, between everyone at our lab to discuss our results and see how that uh, would impact what we're recommending management-wise for pests, for diseases, for whatever it may be, for soil management, et cetera. Uh, And then in the wintertime, we have another huddle where we talk about the questions that we'd like to ask for that growing season and uh, what experiments we're going to do to answer those questions. Um, and so in 2020, we met, we had our huddle and said, okay, this is what we'd like to do this season. Mm -hmm. And then 
things came kind of <laughs> crashing down all around us. Uh, we we had to call a lot of uh, audibles and, uh, it, in fact, cancel some research that we had been wanting to do and had actually already set up to do. Uh, I had questions uh, in soil management that I was going to uh, have some trial sites in Columbus, Ohio, and, and other things like that. And... I mean, with the shutdowns and the travel restrictions and everything this spring, we just had to kind of, we'll, we'll do this. We'll do this when we're all vaccinated, I suppose. Um, but it has, it has limited us to a degree. We've still been able to do research, particularly locally, uh, me in uh, cooperation with a lot of uh, folks at the Morton and, um, and our, our field offices here in the Chicagoland area, we've, we've been able to do some uh, good bit of research mm-hmm. uh, and, and play armchair quarterback over Zoom if we have a research site uh, that we can't immediately drive to. Uh, it's, it has changed. It has decreased a little bit the amount of research productivity that we've been able to do, but mm-hmm. hey, it's, it's what we have to do. Well, you know, it's, um, I think I'm I actually kind of surprised at that because, uh, it seems to me that, uh, you could do a lot of research remotely in the 21st century. So I guess what I'm surprised by is how much still requires you to be on site and to interact with fellow human beings and fellow scientists. And that, that's interesting to know. It is. And, and I, I, I don't want to make it sound like we only were able to do like 20% of what we wanted to do. We have had to cut out some things, but we have largely been able to do exactly what you kind of described there, Mike, is is over Zoom. You know, we're talking to somebody. We say, hey, this is our vision for this trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd like to do this site, these treatments. And uh, could you go ahead and, and write all that down and do it for us and send us samples? And we we've been able to get that done. So we have been still productive Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, there's some things that you still need to travel for. (laughs) Well, what about (laughs) now? One of the other things that you had sent us um, and that Scott just brought up, what about Baroque blight research and some of the other current disease problem research? (laughs) Baroque. Yeah. Baroque blight was certainly one uh, research question, Baroque blight management specifically, uh, where we are able to do that locally. Uh, Baroque mm-hmm. blight is an issue in the Chicagoland area. It is a species of, um, of disease that slowly sort of drains the health away from bur oaks. And if left unmanaged, uh, it, it, will lead to problems that will eventually take the tree. So we have a, an interest in being able to manage this. So I, I am not a pathologist. I do not claim to be a pathologist. Uh, so I have been working with our pathologist, who is stationed down in Charlotte, North Carolina, at our research laboratory, uh, to, to uh, run some trials on baroque blight management and we're looking at uh different fungicides different uh 
amounts of fungicides that you treat the plant with, uh, different timings uh, as far as when you you treat the plant with the tree with the fungicide and uh, wrap that all up in maybe two or three trials and and tracking how these trees are doing uh, with regards to baroque blight severity, disease symptoms uh, over the course of years. And we found that uh, we're, the, the, the treatments that our lab is recommending and that our, 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 our arborists are uh, implementing out in the field are quite effective. And uh, they, they pretty much are in line with recommendations from uh, uh, experts in Iowa and uh, mm-hmm. University of, of Illinois. Um, so uh, it's, a lot, it's a success story as far as uh, Baroque blight management. Okay, and um, how uh, how prevalent is should the the average homeowner be concerned about it? And what's the difference between baroque blight and say oak wilt disease, which is something else you're looking at? I mean, oaks are oaks they're, are such, in trouble. A, they're such an important species or, or, or uh, genera um, that uh, we really need to uh, to take care of them. So, uh, how much danger are we in? Uh, in terms of our oak trees? So oaks, uh, for the oak species in the Midwest, you're, for the most part, going to, um, as far as groups of species, you're going to have two groups. You're going to have the white oak group, which includes white oak, swamp white oak, and species like that. And then you're going to have the red oak group, which is red oak, pin oak, uh, species like that. And each of these two groups have their own issues. Um, but there is overlap. So I would say from what I've seen personally, and from what I'm, I'm hearing from our, our arborists on the ground, the major thing this season that impacted our oaks was root rot, actually. Uh, oaks, regardless of the species, with, with maybe one exception of swamp white oak, because it's right in the name, swamp. Yeah. Oaks do not like to have wet feet, period. They don't like to sit in water. If they do, they are going to get, in all likelihood, root rot disease. Um, and so that has really been the problem region-wide, uh, not only in the Chicagoland area, but throughout the Midwest. And after you sort of step back from that massive problem of of root rot, then you get into the group-specific diseases. Baroque blight affects baroques. Baroques are in the white oak group. And uh, concerning, um, it's not an outright tree killer but it will lead to a slow, gradual decline of the tree, and death will eventually result if Baroque blight is not addressed, usually from some, for some other reason. Um, you, will, you will decrease the, the health of the, the tree enough to where other 
issues are going to take out the tree, like uh, like a canker disease or boring insects or something like that. Uh, red oaks are impacted by oak wilt that you mentioned. Oak wilt is a very serious disease. Uh, if if your red oak or pin oak or something like that gets infected with oak wilt, that's a problem that needs to be addressed ASAP. Um, it is, uh, if you're familiar with things like Dutch elm disease, mm -hmm. uh, these are these are pathogens that get up into the conductive tissue of the tree and essentially plug all of that up. Uh, so the, the tree is no longer able to draw up water. It's essentially choked off that, that transmission of water. And without water, the tree is going to die. Uh, and it, it happens very, very quickly. So uh, lots, of, lots of oak problems out there. Um, and <laughs> our oaks are, are really being hammered by the, the weather and, and, and the weather driving the, uh, the, the prevalence of these diseases. Okay, well, we need to take a break. As you can see, uh, I, I'm frozen here, but it's okay. As long as we've got the audio, that's all I care about. And uh, we're talking to Chad Rigsby from Bartlett Tree Experts. Uh, get your questions in. Um, yeah, we've, we do uh, have one. I'll give you a heads up on serviceberry. So. Uh, oh, on serviceberry. Uh, what a wonderful plant. We'll, we'll talk about that when we come back. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Please stick around. I'm Dick Nakashima with Bartlett Tree Experts. Let me ask you something. Have you ever considered having a professional arborist prune your trees? You and your trees will benefit from it, and I can show you why. Follow me. One of the more common reasons for pruning is the removal of dead branches. Now, in truth, with a little help from the wind, a branch like this would simply break off and fall on its own, but in a very uncontrolled way. And a branch this size falling from this height could be a very serious hazard. Our team of arborists through pruning will ensure that these branches make it to the ground in a safe way. Staying clear? All clear. When necessary, we can use ropes and rigging gear to control branches once they're cut, protecting anything of value that might lie below. You'll notice that when a branch simply breaks off on its own, it usually leaves behind a stub. And it seems harmless enough, but this is actually now an impediment to the tree's natural process to close over that wound. By making a precision cut, an experienced arborist can expedite that process, shielding this site from pests and decay. When these lateral branches grow too long, they can actually become too heavy and break. But we know how to prune to reduce the weight and almost eliminate this risk. And we can also prune them to make sure that they don't contact your house while still keeping the tree's health and beauty intact. Stand clear. Worried about your tree blowing over in the wind? We can selectively remove live branches so that strong winds will pass through your tree's canopy more easily. You know, hazard reduction is important, but pruning can also provide harmony to your landscape. 
These lower branches are blocking the sun and shading out this garden. And the lawn is suffering as well. By pruning these branches, we can raise the crown and achieve the goal of sunlight. It may surprise you to know that Bartlett Tree Experts also specializes in the pruning of ornamental. There's a lot to consider when you're pruning a tree like this, and we do it every day. So, whether it's fruit trees, shrubs, young trees, or mature, Bartlett Tree Experts can provide all your pruning needs. Ladies, it's our time to shine because the weather's getting crisp and chilly outside. There's no need to fear when fall is here because pumpkin spice latte is always near. Roll up to my Starbucks looking so fly. Okay. Had to throw that in for the uh, season. Oh, my. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, but I also, uh, I had to uh, play that uh, Bartlett uh, spot for a couple of reasons. One of that was so interesting uh, we played that last week, and I got such a great response from folks yeah. who said, I didn't know that. Did you see that guy, what he was doing? Uh, Ron Calgill was so impressed. He said, I was watching the commercial. I, didn't, I never watch commercials. That was really interesting. So, they did a great job with that. Um, they did. And Chad, I want to know, can you go up a zip line like that the way he did just sort of? Uh, man, it, uh, he, he is pretty nimble up there in the tree. My... Fat, out of shape, but could never, could never do what he did. Not. Oh my goodness! But what is interesting? What that uh, that? Uh, oh yeah, let's take care of this, Peggy. Why don't you uh, uh, do that? Uh, wait a second. No, maybe I should do it right now before we okay. we go any. Uh, yeah, because then. Here. I'll read the other one when you're switching. We got to take care. Speaking of taking care of some business here, if you've ever wondered what regenerative agriculture is, um, you should sign up for Forefront Ideas in Food and Farming. The final season for 20, I'm sorry, the final session for 2020 is on December 13th. It's called Regenerative Agriculture Details of a Profitable Journey. Nationally recognized North Dakota farmer and rancher Gabe Brown stands at the forefront of the regenerative agriculture movement. He is perhaps best known for helping to introduce the concept of cover crop cocktails as a key strategy for jumpstarting soil health and nourishing soil biology. Gabe is a farmer, rancher, author, and healthy food system advocate. After four years of hail and drought, Gabe and his family took a broken, degraded, and unprofitable farm and by following nature's principles, regenerated it into a healthy, profitable farm teeming with life. The Forefront Sessions are free online via Zoom, but you need to sign up. Go to mchenry.edu slash Forefront to register and check out upcoming events in December and January and February of 2021. That's mchenry.edu slash Forefront and I am totally frozen again. Uh, that's okay. Uh, but I want to get back to the, the pruning thing because we're getting into to winter here, Chad. And um, what do folks need to know about what the, their, you can do uh, in the winter? Uh, I think of uh, winter as prime time for, for tree care, uh, even though many trees are dormant. Uh, how do you view that? Uh, I... I... I generally agree with you. Absolutely. Uh, I, th I think there's, there's one major uh, misnomer out there that 
that um, we're unable to do pruning in the winter. We're unable to see what branches and stems are dead, need to be removed, things like that. Um, just like you said, often winter is, is a great time. Uh, in fact, for some species, the time mm-hmm. for like pruning. Oaks. Exactly. Um, specifically uh, red oaks. So we, we just got done discussing oak wilt disease uh, in red oaks. And that one of, one of the ways that that disease spreads is through pruning cuts. You make a, uh, you, you prune a a plant, you have an exposed wound there, and that wound is attractive to beetles that carry this fungus, uh, with them. They'll land on that, that wound and will spread the the disease to that that oak tree. So the, the way that we avoid time. that is we we don't prune when those uh, we don't prune red oaks when that beetle that vectors that disease is out and active. Which the winter is the time for red oak pruning. Uh, Peggy, what you were you were you were saying something there? Oh, I just said, I was just clarifying in the summertime, you know, when the beetles are active, which Chad also said. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yes. Yep. So, uh, and a lot of the times the, the, there are state recommendations, uh, the, the, the state extension services, Michigan, Illinois, mm-hmm. uh, 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 Iowa, the, the, the university systems will have uh, recommendations for when to stop pruning. And even the state, uh, government will have uh, bans on pruning red oaks at a certain time of year. So all's to say that winter is a great time for pruning red oaks specifically, but Mm -hmm. really uh, uh, different varieties of of species. Um, And it's probably easier for you to work in the winter as well because people's gardens are dormant at that point. Yeah, it can be. Ground uh, ground will freeze and therefore uh, uh, making big, <laughs> uh, big tire tracks in folks, which we, we, we uh, have methods of uh, not doing that in the summertime. But ground freezes, it's easy to get back to a site, uh, easy to do these pruning jobs. It's, it's really a, a great time for it. Well, and of course, the leaves are gone and you get to see the structure of the tree uh, much more clearly. Uh, what's the other uh, species that you shouldn't be pruning, uh, uh, that, that you wait till the winter to prune? You, you were talking about oaks. Um, hmm, is that your question? I'm not sure. Uh, oh, I, I thought there was another one. Yeah, there was another species in That you're the, supposed uh, to avoid the the pruning. Um, and, I, and, and I'm not going to guess uh, at this point. I'm so. at a loss. Okay. I don't quite remember. To be okay. honest. Scott says elms. Elms. That's what I was thinking. I thought it was. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's that. I should have remembered that. Uh, elms, basically the same Skeet issue. Skeet says elm too. Thank you, thank you, Skeet. He Skeet, wants to there as well. Okay. <laughs> These guys are all over it. I'm, I'm, I'm making us look bad. Uh, <laughs> elms, it's the same problem as uh, red oaks and oak wilt. You have Dutch elm disease that is being vectored by 
beetles. And so we don't want to make those cuts. We don't want to expose that, that mm -hmm. uh, wound uh, for beetles to get up in there and spread that disease. All right. So Thank can you, you trim it in the summertime if you seal it off? Is that a possibility? If you had damage? Um, we, we generally don't like to do that, but uh, we, you, it can be done. Um, it, it can be. We like to do it in the winter's time just to be safe and sure. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll really only prune these species if there's something like storm damage and you've got branches everywhere and the tree needs to be cleaned up a bit. We'll make those cuts and then seal them with a with a sealant. Okay. Uh, okay. Getting back to winter because we're heading into winter, and you talked about the advantages of uh, of of uh, working on trees in winter. But there are things that can happen to your tree. You can get winter injury uh, on on your trees and shrubs. What what are some of the things people need to look out for? Yeah, there are uh, different types of plants that that are prone to getting different types of winter injuries. So one of the ones that we uh, is in our sort of sphere up here in the Midwest is what we call winter burn on evergreens. And this is these are species like boxwood, like uh, conifers, spruce and things like that where these plants are exposed to cold, drying winds during the wintertime, and it will actually injure the plant uh, by, by just bombarding it with wind and, and essentially drying out that foliage and turning it brown and crispy. Uh, that, is, that is one type of, of winter injury to be on the lookout for. Uh, another one that we occasionally see uh, are called frost cracks. And keep in mind that a lot of these, a lot of winter injuries or early spring injuries, these injuries on, on woody plants that are associated with, um, with cold weather are, are really because of changes in temperature, uh, sudden major and drastic changes in temperature. So uh, frost cracks are an example of that. And these uh, what, what, species... What, what exactly is a frost crack? A frost crack is literally a, a crack, a wound that looks like a crack in the bark, uh, usually on uh, pr probably the main stem of, like the trunk mm -hmm. of of a tree. And there are, there are some species that are prone to, to frost cracks. Uh, the one that jumps to, into my mind immediately is uh, red maple. They're pretty prone mm -hmm. to frost cracks. And again, it's this sort of, these, these oscillation of, of, of freezing and then warm and then freezing and then warm. By the way, Chad Rigsby from Bartlett Tree Experts, um, and uh, you can go to Bartlett.com. I, I realize we should mention the, uh, the website, too, if you want somebody to come out and take a look at all these issues that you might be seeing. Um, 
In addition, but you mentioned that the, the cracks are caused by sudden changes in temperature, which we have had none of at this point, and it doesn't even look like, uh, well, you know, this has been a warm one. Last year at this point, we had snow, we had frozen mm-hmm. temperatures, um, uh, just just amazing stuff, and it's it's been very different this year, uh, hasn't it, Chad? Yeah, this has been, a, a, I would say, a fairly warm fall for us in the, in the Midwest so far. Uh, but yes, uh, these uh, most of these winter injuries are like a frost crack. Is are the result of sudden drastic changes in temperature, temperature fluctuations. Uh, in the case of frost cracks, it's it's where the constriction and expansion of the bark eventually leads to a crack. Uh, and there are species that are prone to frost cracks. Uh, one one that can't, comes to mind immediately is red maple. Uh, there, there are, you can have damage to foliage, uh, in the springtime if it, if it, uh, we have a, a late frost or freeze. Uh, so be on the lookout for things like that. Uh, if, if you're seeing any irregularities and uh, one of the obvious ones is, uh, snow and ice load, uh, especially here in the upper Midwest. If we have an ice storm or a snowstorm, we could have branches and stems breaking, uh, so just things to be on the lookout for in the wintertime. Yeah, that's, that's a, a, a really important point is that, uh, and not all, um, folks are going to be able to deal with that. Uh, if you've got a, a, a mature tree, obviously there's not much you can do about a snow and ice load. What happens is mm-hmm. you have a shrub or a smaller tree and people want to help out. And sometimes that's a little, that's more dangerous than just leaving the tree alone. Isn't it Chad? It can, yeah, yeah. Um, it, the, you know, a lot of these species, especially if it's a native species, I mean, they have uh, evolved to deal with our winters and our conditions up here. So uh, these plants are hardy. They'll they'll be able to handle it and tough it out. Um, you know, we can come out there with a little hair dryer and dry off the ice, but no, we're, we're not going to do that. No, you're not. You're not going to do that. Well, but even you know, if you're going to, and I've gotten these tips from Skeet uh, in the past about if you if you have to brush snow, don't go vigorously shaking the branches. You want to just sort of gently move it off. And if you do have a, a branch break, get an arborist out to um, uh, to address that as quickly as possible. Absolutely, there there could be issues that someone who who might not be in, as versed in, in tree care, tree management, uh, something they might miss that, that might be an issue, uh, have uh, a, an ISA certified arborist. Obviously, we, we'd love for you to call Bartlett, but uh, we believe we know we're the best, but call an <laughs> ISA certified arborist to come, come look at your tree. Well, you know, and I say that too, you know, uh, uh, I laugh about it because you guys are a sponsor of our program. Uh, but, uh, f- for goodness sake, uh, if you have a tree issue and, and some folks watching this, uh, don't have Bartlett in their area, get a, a certified arborist out to look at your trees. They're such, and we say this all the time, uh, trees are such an important part of your property that um, why would you take a chance? Why would you, why would you risk that? It's it it adds to the value uh, of your home. Um, so get a certified arborist out there. I am with a tree care company that 
I have stood on folks' property with an arborist and actively talked people out of removing trees because we're thinking about the whole picture. We're thinking about the trees that are going to be removed, the trees that are going to stay there, the value of the property. We're looking at your property and, and you as, as a unit there. Mm-hmm. And hey, if, if it's in the tree's best interest and the, the, the landscape's best interest not to remove those trees, I'm going to talk you out of it. <laughs> and I, I think that's great because I think one of the things that happens is that too often people think the simplest thing to do, let's just get rid of the tree. Uh, and, uh, there was a, an issue and I've talked about this on the show before uh, a couple of years ago, I was speaking, uh, uh, to a garden club and they were asking me, asking me about tar spot and, um, a woman had removed some silver maples simply because they got tar spot. Uh, and you know, and they didn't know what to do. And I said, well, that's a little extreme, don't you think? Uh, and that's the kind of thing you're talking about, isn't it, Chad? Absolutely. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. That, that, I'm glad you did that. Uh, talking them out of that tar spot is one of those things. And a lot of foliar diseases are not going to in themselves bring the tree down. It's not going to kill the tree. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and the value of these silver maples that are being removed to the property, I mean, trees add a lot of value to properties. People like mature, large trees. Uh, for shade for a variety of reasons so we need to try and take care of them and uh, you know not just remove them if uh, we don't you know they're causing a few sticks to land in our yard or causing a few acorns or something well Um, yeah and and, and sometimes honeydew you get insects in your tree and you're parking your car under it and it gets honeydew on it and um, they think well the tree's got to go well maybe you shouldn't be parking your car there maybe maybe that's a, a simpler solution the honeydew can be addressed as well. I mean, yeah. we can we can have our cake and eat it too here. Absolutely. All right, we have just a couple of minutes here. Um, Do we want to get to questions or talk about? Things yeah, like let's let's get sauce. let's get a couple of questions uh, here, uh, Peggy. Okay. So one question. I'll start in reverse order because it's from the same person. Do you prune dwarf weeping mulberry? Oh boy. Um, I mean, you can one can do anything they want. Um, mulberry should, is, should you? <laughs> uh, it depends. It, it really depends. Uh, it, it depends on what your goals are, how you want that plant to look. Um, one can prune that plant, but, uh, I would, I would need to know more as far as what, what this individual is looking for, what goals they're trying to mm-hmm. achieve. Um, things like that. And these are conversations to have with an arborist. Then her other question goes back to the service berry. Um, This is from Kathleen. Uh, She says, mine is not looking too healthy. Is my soil perhaps too much clay? Any tips to remedy? Uh, Service berry can tolerate clay soils, but it really prefers the coarser textured soils, loam, with maybe some sand in it. Mm-hmm. And it does prefer acidic soils as well, which we don't have in the Midwest. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. We talk about our great soils here in the Midwest. They're actually uh, not that great for growing woody plants. Um, there are a few things. Uh, they don't like moist soils, really perpetually wet soils. So there could be a few different issues there. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, we would want to come out and inspect it and, and, and look at what sort of situation we're talking about, what sort of symptoms of, of, uh, of decline or whatever that we might be seeing. We could hone in on, on a management strategy for that plant. Uh, one more thing is uh, boxwood blight. Uh, you mentioned um, that has become very prevalent. Um, personally, I think people too many people grow boxwoods, but that's just me. Uh, you know, you see you see them everywhere because they generally are are easy to maintain, but not when they get blight. So, what's the story on that? Well, Mike, as as far as uh, taking a position on uh, on whether people should should plant or not plant boxwood, I'm not going to take, <laughs> a, uh, uh, I'm not going to take necessarily your side, but you know, nudge, nudge, wink, know, wink. But, but yeah, boxwood blight is, is a problem. It's a real big problem, uh, in the Eastern U S. Um, this is a, a, a disease that is, is a killer. It will kill the plant. Uh, some, varieties and cultivars of boxwood are are very resistant others are very very susceptible uh, there's information about what varieties are resistant and susceptible and what varieties you should plant thinking about boxwood blight um, it's also a manageable disease uh, we have pretty darn successfully been able to manage it uh, in folks's landscape but uh, it's a complicated disease and there are a lot of uh, a lot of things at play with uh, with this disease and how it's spread. And once it's on the property, how do you manage it? Uh, what other things besides fungicides are you doing? Uh, are you what other tactics are you using to manage it? It's um it's a it's a big one. And uh, but it's manageable. And folks can find more information about that online. Calling an arborist. Um, call, you uh, calling places like the Morton, your extension uh, service. Um, there's information out there for you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Chad, thank you so much for being with us uh, again. Again, uh, I tell people to go to Bartlett.com. If you, if you need help with your boxwood blight or with uh, oaks, if you're concerned about the oaks on your property, uh, uh, anything at all, and uh, they'll come out and they'll help you set up a plan. And that's, that's a really good thing to do. Um, and um, I want you to get back to us as you find out more information about uh, the light and the effect uh, on uh, uh, LEDs, effect of LEDs on plants, if there is a, such a thing. Can't wait to see what the studies are about that. You got it. All right. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. When we come back, uh, we're talking to Jessica Chipkin uh, from Crate Free, Illinois. I hope you stick around for that. At this time of year, we spend a lot of time indoors with our plants, so help them thrive. The plants you're viewing were treated with Leafzyme, a foliage spray designed to activate beneficial microbes already present on the leaves. A spritz every few weeks promotes growth-enhancing microorganisms that process dust and other particles into nutrition that indoor plants can absorb through their leaves for beautiful and vigorous growth. Go to blazing-star.com and check out their BioGarden line for home gardeners. The world has changed. A year ago, you were growing food because it was fun. Now it's important. 
That's why you need Happy Leaf LED grow lights. Thanks to the best science, the wavelengths are tuned to your plant's needs. They're versatile, they're elegant, they have a five-year warranty, and they're made in America. Peggy and I are huge fans. Go to MikeNovak.net for the code to save 5% on your purchase. Go to HappyLeafLED.com to get more information. Happy Leaf, it's about the light. Since 2001, DiveHeart has been revolutionizing rehabilitation using zero gravity and scuba therapy to give confidence, independence, self-esteem, and yes, freedom to children, veterans, and others with disabilities. At DiveHeart, we believe in the power of partnership because together we can do great things. Let DiveHeart help you imagine the possibilities in your life. Go to DiveHeart.org to learn more. Collective Resource Compost wants to show you how they make composting easy in Chicagoland. You can reduce greenhouse gas emissions by diverting food scraps from landfills. CRC brings you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter, they swap it out, and get it to a commercial composting operation. Composting is what nature would do if we just got out of her way. Learn how easy it is to divert waste at your home, school, or workplace. Go to collectiveresource.us. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a soup-son of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root, and bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music portrait. At this time of year, we spend a lot of time indoors with our plants, so help them thrive. No, that wasn't what I wanted. Okay, hang on a second. Oh, dear. <laughs> Uh, I had I had you, the other screen you up. You got gremlins it, over there it, today. It, it, the screen started to come up and then it didn't, and there we go. And, and there, you're frozen again. Oh yeah, I'm not even. I don't even care about that anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm just let's just leave that photo up there and bring in our guests here um, on your right at the bottom of the screen, Jessica Chipkin from Crate Free Illinois. Hi, Jessica. Hi, How are you? Good um, morning. And your bird is with you somewhere on the premises, isn't she's, she? Uh, yeah, she's behind me. She uh, might photobomb. I hope she does. Uh, I, I, she just comes <laughs> flying in. Well, she usually lands on my head. So it, uh, with clients and Zoom meetings, I've become very popular. So you yeah. might hear her. Yeah, I, hopefully. I'm I'm counting on it. This is That's really, okay. really what I hopefully want. I know, I know. <laughs> Uh, and uh, Tyler Lobdell uh, is uh, on your left there from Food and Water Watch, and you're streaming in from uh, Boise, Idaho. Is that right? That's right, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Well, I'm thinking of the last time that uh, I saw you guys, and um, I, I was talking to Jessica about that. And Peggy, uh, you uh, you were the smart one. Uh, it was March 11th. Excuse me. <clears throat> I, I was working the tech from the background. That's right. She was working the tech from the background. But there was a a, a live event that we did. Um, it was the best one in Chicago. Yeah, it was the Chicago's first factory farm animal welfare town hall. Uh, and of course, it was just as the uh, COVID nineteen was uh, making its presence felt. 
Um, and as I mentioned to Jessica earlier, um, I was I was uh, lathered up in uh, hand sanitizer and, you know, holding microphones for people and just thinking, uh, wow, we uh, this isn't going to happen again for a long time. And it's and it has absolutely been the case. Uh, but your work has to continue. Uh, in fact, uh, Tyler was there. You you were there as part of mm-hmm. the panel, and and you came in uh, from uh, Idaho. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, um, Jessica, what have you been working on? We, we're going to get to to Tyler about um, a bill that's been introduced in Congress that uh, is very very interesting. Um, what's been happening on the Illinois front here, Jessica? Well, on the Illinois front, we've been really concentrating. Uh, we, we kind of laid low during the summer because I think a lot of people and businesses and uh, organizations were kind of figuring out how to adjust to our new reality. So we were kind of just laying low. Uh, as you know, Mike, we started a campaign uh, with Aldi and gestation crates last year so we were just kind of waiting till things got a little bit better and they did in september uh so we kind of we rebooted that plus we launched another campaign targeting costco and their policy on gestation crates and so so we have been focusing more on on the retail campaigns right now and i'd love to go into a little more detail about each of them but First, Mike, if it's okay with you, I'd like to give a little context for what we're doing with these. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because I know uh, a lot of people, there might be some of your listeners who haven't heard me talk before or don't know much about Crate Free Illinois. So mm-hmm. I just want to pop a level, if I may, and talk about the kinds of environments that these um, animals are raised on. These are the animals that supply the food on the shelves of stores like Aldi, uh, the big grocery chains, Aldi, Costco, uh, Jewel. Uh, um, These are the animals that produce these food. And these animals are bred and raised on, in the the business, they call it CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations. We call them factory farms. You'll probably hear Brody any minute now. (laughs) Um, There's a lot to dislike about the factory farms. Uh, uh, worker issues. There was actually an article that just broke a few days ago about Tyson officials and executives taking bets on how many people would get COVID. I mean, we've all read this summer about uh, slaughterhouses and industrial farms being COVID hotspots. They destroy the environment and local communities. Again, there was a big article, a biggest settlement ever with Smithfield and a rural community in, uh, I think it was North Carolina, they had to pay more damages than ever before to destroying the um, the value of this community, and I'm sure Tyler might have more to say about that. So, um, but at Crayfield, Illinois, we concentrate on the animal welfare issues. Um, these organ these uh, facilities operate with one principle: pack the animals in to maximize the number of animals per space to produce massive amounts of pork at the cheapest price possible. So that's really the foundation, the animal welfare perspective, high, high, high level. Uh, one of the ways that these animals are packed in when it comes to pigs is they um, pack them into gestation crates, which are probably the most entrenched form of animal cruelty and animal agriculture. Um, for those who don't know what gestation crates are, they are tiny metal 
cages where the mother pig is confined for her entire life, except for a few weeks where she's taken out to go into another enclosure to give birth to the pigs, to her piglets, and then she goes right back in. I'll give you an example about how bad gestation crates are. Let's say you, your, your neighbor has a dog and the dog is, you notice the dog is locked in a crate that is so small, the dog cannot turn around, the dog can't stretch its legs out to lie down, um, and it stays that way 24-7, month after month after month. That would be animal cruelty, and um, that person would be breaking the law, and there would be repercussions. On a factory farm, this is business as usual. And there's two ways to fight this. There's legislation, and 12 states have banned uh, the use of gestation crates. That's not really an option here in Illinois right now. Hopefully it will be um, at some point. And the other way are these corporate campaigns, which now I'll go into. Um, the corporate ca campaigns are important because these big grocery stores are the customers to these factory farms. And it's up to us, the consumers, we do have power, we're the customers, to let these stores know that we don't approve of this practice and we want to buy, if you eat pork, you want to be able to buy more humanely raised pork. So I wanted to do that just to like, create content. So I hope that I, I did that. Mike, you have any questions? No, no, no. That's that. that. <laughs> well, I, I always have uh, questions and, uh, and I'm sure that uh, uh, Peggy does as well, but um, you, a lot of us tend to think of Costco as one of the good guys. All right. Um, because they, they have uh, worker friendly policies and, and, and other policies that um, um, uh, make you uh, that are better than some of the other uh, um, uh, grocers out there and, and big box stores out there. Uh, so in terms of their policies uh, with regard to meat, it sounds like they're kind of in the same place as, as everybody else. Is that the case? No, not, not, no, not really. Uh, Costco actually, I think, ultimately is a good guy. And they are actually ahead because – but there's a little bit of a catch that's kind of subtle, which is, is different than Aldi. Costco is less clear-cut than Aldi. Aldi has no gestation crate policy. Last year, after meeting with us, um, their headquarters in Batavia, they did go as far as to say they're going to tell their suppliers they expect them to get rid of gestation crates. But that expectation is not like a commitment. It's like, say you had a teenage kid and you told the kid, I expect you to clean your bedroom, your room every night at nine o'clock. It could happen, maybe it won't happen. So an expectation is is not strong. It needs to be a commitment with a timeline. Now, Costco actually has made a commitment to get rid of gestation crates from its supply chain by 2022. So, and that's, that's huge, that's a big thing. But the problem is, and this is what's kind of like when you, um, dig a little bit and you lift up the hood, there's a problem with this because their major producers, JBS, which you probably see more as the Swift brand, um, um, uh, Smithfield, uh, they are, are, are some of the major producers. What these companies do, um, they keep the mother pigs in gestation crates for the first six weeks of their pregnancy. Now keep in mind, um, that's like one-third of their pregnancy cycle. Also keep in mind, I probably know more about a hog's gestation cycle than most regular people. So um, that was a joke. 
Definitely. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, anyway, so the the mother pigs are kept in the crates for the first six weeks. So they're not truly crate free. Um, and what we're trying to get Costco to do is get truly get rid of truly be crate free and get rid of get the pigs out of the crates for their entire pregnancy because six weeks is still a very long time to um, be stuck immobile. So that's so Costco is ahead of Aldi in that sense, but there's still that problem, and that's the case with all the big producers right now, except Hormel is the first one, and it just was announced uh, about a month ago. Hormel is the first big producer that actually said who agreed to be totally to, to get rid of putting the pigs in crates for the first six weeks. So that becomes more significant especially in California, because California has this big major law that's going to be kicking in in 2022 that makes it, and Tyler, you might want to jump in on this. It's, we know it as Prop 12. It's actually called the, um, uh, gosh, which is a prevention of oh, animal cruelty um, act. I think it's called. Tyler, you might. Tyler, I do you have? Just... Well, and, and let's do a quick introduction to Tyler uh, yeah. Lobdell. Yeah. He's uh, with Food and Water Watch on the, on the legal team, um, and uh, you combat factory farms through legal advocacy. Um, so tell us a little bit about. Uh, we'll get to the um, uh, to the Farm System Reform Act. Uh, what do you know about the California bill? Yeah, and I'm sorry, I also don't have the, the formal name off. Yeah, I have it. Fingers. I have it. Uh, oh, okay, here it is. It's the Prevention of Cruelty to Farmed Animals. Great. Yeah, so more colloquially known as Prop 12. Um, it was passed a couple years ago in California by a voter initiative, and it's an effort to, to minimize animal welfare uh, issues on factory farms by establishing some, some baseline um, care and treatment standards, most important of which really, as Jess has been getting into, is just the matter of how much space do these animals have to, to live in. Um, so with respect to uh, pigs, that means gestation crates are no longer to be allowed in um, the production of pork products that would be sold uh, within California's boundaries. And so while it doesn't mandate practices outside the state of California, California is a large enough market that producers tend to follow California's lead with things like this because they understandably want to be able to access the California market and the consumers there. Well, and, and that takes us to uh, the Farm System Reform Act because uh, listening to you and to Jessica uh, it sounds like, you know, if, if you can get California on board, that's great. If you go to Aldi, if you go to Costco, it's, but it's all piecemeal trying to to work up some uh, inertia here where you can make a change. Whereas the Farm System Reform Act, uh, which was introduced by Cory Booker uh, in the Senate and, and Ro Khanna in the House, um, is more comprehensive. Would you like to explain that, Tyler? Yeah, thanks, Mike. So I think it's important for your listeners uh, for me to make one point really clear uh, at the outset, and that is, you know, that we have reached the place we are today where the vast majority of the meat that people are able to buy at the grocery store come from a factory farm, which crams animals literally snout to snout, beak to beak, uh, degrades the environment harms local communities. The reason why we've reached this place 
uh, was not by accident, and it's not because factory farms are the most efficient or best way to produce food. It's because of very deliberate policy decisions made over the span of decades. And so the Farm System Reform Act is an attempt to remedy sort of those systemic poor policy decisions that have plagued our country for, for years now. And so at, at its core, um, sort of the most important provisions of the FSRA, uh, it would impose an immediate moratorium on new and expanded large factory farms. So no new large factory farms could be constructed in the United States. And it would phase out existing large factory farms by 2040. And so that's a very bold objective and exactly what we need to transform animal agriculture in our country. And then along with that, it would uh, authorize $100 billion over the span of 10 years to help farmers transition away from factory farms. So one of the big problems in our system right now is that the large companies like Tyson and Smithfield and JBS, essentially uh, the, the, the folks who raise the animals that become their products are under draconian contracts, which provide them very little leeway in how they run their operations and really lock them into practicing these factory farm models that are bad for the environment, bad for their communities. And so this money would be out there and allow folks to transition away to more sustainable, humane practices like pasture-based or even transitioning to specialty crops instead of raising animals altogether. So and it really is just a suite of policy reforms um, that would help break the stranglehold that factory farming currently has. And as you mentioned, um, it's it's ambitious. And, and that's what gives me pause because it's so ambitious. Uh, I, I find it hard to imagine you can get enough support to get it passed. Uh, for instance, uh, something you called to my attention is that there are no uh, Illinois uh, supporters of this yet. Uh, and Illinois is, is of course, surprising. Uh, it, it does surprise me a little bit the, because we have so many, uh, democratic representatives, uh, in the state of Illinois. Uh, why is it, why, why has, is Illinois not represented right now in, uh, in supporting this bill? It's a great question, Mike. And I, I can't say for sure. Um, you know, the states that have more, um, entrenched factory farm industries, uh, those industries then have more leverage over our political leadership. And so that may be part of the dynamic, yeah, to, to say it nicely. Um, the birds chiming but in. But I think, yeah. I, I, I She's think right here. Uh, honestly, this is like a cue to your listeners that if this is an important, that if this is an important issue to them, it's really critical that folks reach out to their representatives and, and say that you want them to support this bill. Um, that's really what will will push folks to to do so. And, and the, um, yeah. in terms in terms of it being so um, sort of bold, you know, I think the important thing to recognize is that this is even part of the conversation today. You know, five years ago, ten years ago, uh, you would have been laughed out of laughed out of the room to even suggest that a bill like this would be would be brought to the floor. Um, so the fact that this has twenty two co sponsors in the House and the fact that it has very prominent senators, Senator uh, Murky, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders have all co-sponsored is huge. And if nothing else, this is what sometimes in, in the, the legislative parlance we call a marker bill. So this is a bill that really puts forward where we need to be 
to really set the frame so that the conversation can move in the right direction. Whereas again, five years ago, this, this conversation wasn't even on the table. Yeah, I have a question, Tyler, um, about Illinois, not, not, no one from Illinois co-sponsoring the bill, either from the House or the Senate, I think. I haven't checked. Do you think that's because Illinois is one of the largest factory farm, that's like the fourth largest factory farm state in the country? Yeah. So it's going to be the states uh, I, that have less factory farms in them. Yeah, sadly. <laughs> You know, yeah, I, I guess so. And it's just as, you know, follow the money, right? I'm, I'm guessing that there's a lot of money being put into uh, political campaigns by this industry in Illinois more so than, say, Massachusetts, um, where Markey and, and Elizabeth Warren are, are representatives from. Vermont. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, um, well, Vermont, Vermont's an interesting one because of their dairy industry. But, but yes, I think as a general rule, that is yeah. correct. It's going to be more difficult to push our representatives from Iowa, Illinois, um, Arkansas, these states with really robust factory farm presence. So is the biggest opposition something like the Farm Bureau or is it more coming from the producers? So there is strenuous opposition from the Farm Bureau. Uh, not a surprise there. And... As far as I know, all of the major um, factory farm trade industry organizations have also come out in opposition. So the National Pork Producers Council, uh, the Chicken Producers Group, so the, those big sort of industry lobby groups that, that really represent the multinational corporations that are behind this, they've all come out in opposition. Importantly, the more grassroots farming organizations uh, very strongly support it, Family Farm Defenders, um, National Farmers Union, the State Farmers Unions, those organizations that really represent the folks on the ground tend to be very supportive. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, in the information you, you sent me, it would put more responsibility on the big guys, what you call integrators. Um, be, these are the, uh, the companies that contract with smaller farms, and then they tell them exactly what they have to do um, and is that a way they get off the hook uh, uh, in terms of, of the factory farm conditions? Absolutely. It's a, it is part of their business model. And so all of the liabilities and risks, they try to contract away to the, the individual families out on the acreage that, where the barns uh, actually live and the, the animals are housed and raised. And then the corporation takes the vast majority of the profit. Um, and essentially tells the farmer exactly how they have to run their operation and exactly, frankly, how they have to destroy the environment and, and mm -hmm. their local communities. And so, you know, Jessica mentioned the Smithfield case in North Carolina, which is groundbreaking. Smithfield has been sued. I think there's over 15 lawsuits pending right now um, claiming that Smithfield has caused a nuisance in the state of North Carolina. And those have been successful, thankfully. Um, prior to those lawsuits, there was really no accountability. But we still have a problem where, for example, the EPA does not consider Smithfield Foods the relevant regulated party when it comes to a Smithfield factory farm. They put all the blame on the individual family who's contracting with Smithfield. And the Farm System Reform Act would change that. It would create responsibility for the integrators, the big corporations, to um, make sure that those folks who are working for them are are not destroying the environment, and when they do, the, the integrator would be liable. It seems so, so obvious. Yeah, so I'm just saying, it just seems so obvious that who's pulling the strings here, and then the smaller farmers they get stuck in. And we've seen this in several of the uh, 
uh, documentaries. Yeah. yeah, where where people get stuck and they get in debt and they can't get out, and the only way they can possibly survive is to continue along this road, and it's just so sad. We we had somebody make a comment in in the feed about what if it's a non-U.S. owned company. And and what protections are going to be there? Yeah, that that was that would be my question too, Tyler. Because uh, you know you're talking about multinationals, so we pass a law in in the United States, uh, and again, it's 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 a heavy lift right now. But how is that going to affect uh, multinationals? That's a great question. It will affect them as well. So, as some folks may know, Smithfield, for example, is owned by a Hong Kong-based investment firm. Um, because their operations are here in the United States, those operations have to comply with U.S. law. And so just because the, the corporation that's sort of the umbrella over something may be headquartered or based elsewhere, um, they still have to comply with EPA regulations and state regulations. And so the FSRA would apply to them as well in terms of this uh, 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 placing of, of responsibility on those corporate entities. So where do we go from here? Um, uh, how does <laughs> the election, which is not even over, uh, sadly, uh, just insanely, I guess I have to say, uh, it seems to me that uh, all of this, any legislation is, is kind of in limbo at the moment. Everything's just been put on hold until we see what happens. Sure. I mean, this really just comes down to people power. Uh, we need to hold our our elected representatives accountable. And this is an important issue to Americans. Every survey that's done shows that people in the United States care deeply about animal welfare and want a better system in terms of animal agriculture. And so it just comes down to us demanding that from the people we put into power. And so again, listeners should reach out to their senator or their representative, both on the state and federal level, and demand that they support this bill and, and similar efforts to yeah, improve I, the system. And, and, I, and I agree that you know, in, in Illinois, it's kind of um, um, telling that we have no co-sponsors here. So this is an opportunity for uh, the folks watching in Illinois, and we have people watching from other states. You can look at your own representatives, but, you know, get on the horn and say, hey, um, uh, how come you're not behind this bill? Jessica, you were going to say something there. Yeah, and I was also going to say, and so you know, clearly legislation is one path to change that. And the other is consumer power. Is um, There's reaching out to legislative legis- legislators, and then there's reaching out to the retailers that sell the stuff. I mean, these retailers are the customers of these big pork producers. If we let retailers know that we don't want to buy this pork, eventually that's going to draw. That's a very grassroots way to drive change, and that's and consumers have power. So it's really on us to to make these changes. It's not going. Unfortunately, it's not going to happen on its own. The will comes from the people. Always goes back and to that. I- if I may, that that's a really excellent point, Jess. And and I also just want to flag that you know, Create Free Illinois hosts a really excellent service where you can find small scale, sustainable, humane producers in your area. And so another way you can really push back on this is just by voting with your dollar. It's a simple thing that each of us can do uh, when you purchase meat products. Be conscious about who produced that and how they produced it. And to the extent that you're able to buying local from a real farmer 
in your neighborhood or, or your community or your area is a huge thing that you can do to support a change in how we do this. And that's a really good point, uh, Tyler. Yeah. Uh, and so, Jessica, give us uh, your the places that people should go to support sure. Code Free Illinois. Sure. The best place to go is our website, www.createfreeil.org. There's a tab there to download the mobile app um, that Tyler was talking about. We have about 400 local farmers. The mobile app will know exactly where you are, and it will tell you who's in your area that you could buy uh, um, meat products from. Not too late to get Thanksgiving turkeys that way, perhaps. Uh, and then there's also a tab on how you can help, and you can learn more about how you can help us with our corporate campaigns as well. And of course, Tyler, folks can also go to foodandwaterwatch.org to see the uh, initiatives that you're involved in. That's correct. Very much encourage you to. Um, And of course, the usual social media, Facebook pages Mm -hmm. and Twitter accounts and and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, good luck. Uh, I, 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 I'm so encouraged that, that this uh, bill has been introduced, but so discouraged because I look at what it's going to have to overcome um, to be uh, turned into a law. And, um, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy that somebody's trying to do this. And it's, it's, uh, it's a good first step. Uh, as, you, as you mentioned, Tyler, it's what a marker bill. Uh, it gives you an idea of where we need to go. Um, and so um, congratulations and continued good luck on it thanks Thanks so much all right thank you both for being with us it's it's the mike novak show with peggy malecki when we come back it's meteorologist rick DeMaio. you can reduce your household garbage 30 percent by the simple act of composting but i live in a condo or an apartment you say well if you're in the chicago area contact collective resource compost they give you a fresh five gallon bucket or a 32 gallon neighbor tote if you're working with your community you fill it with food scraps they swap it out on a regular schedule and voila you're returning organic matter back to the soil instead of creating harmful methane in a landfill go to collectiveresource.us they make composting easy there's a new urgency for people to grow their own food and thanks to happy leaf led grow lights your seedlings will be healthier with a better germination rate and faster growth you'll get lower operating costs and higher yields that's because the wavelengths are tuned to your plants needs they have a 50,000 plus hour minimum lifespan and they're made in america go to mikenovak.net for the code to save five percent on your purchase and go to happyleafled.com to get more information happy leaf it's about the light At this time of year, we spend a lot of time indoors with our plants, so help them thrive. The plants you're viewing were treated with Leafzyme, a foliage spray designed to activate beneficial microbes already present on the leaves. A spritz every few weeks promotes growth-enhancing microorganisms that process dust and other particles into nutrition that indoor plants can absorb through their leaves for beautiful and vigorous growth. Go to blazing-star.com and check out their BioGarden line for home gardeners. Love to eat turkey. <laughs> Love to eat turkey. <laughs> Love to eat turkey. Cause it's good. Love to eat turkey like a good boy should. Well. Cause it's turkey to eat. So, so good. good. All right. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. I, what? Nope, you, nope, you, nope, what? Nope, you, you, nope. 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 I don't nope. eat turkey. I know you don't. So, uh, 
what will you have instead of turkey on the turkey day? All the other good stuff. Brussels the, sprouts, squash, mashed potatoes, cranberries. Okay. Okay. Uh, just just kind of wondering. But, uh, you know, I had, I had to have something in, in honor of the, the holiday there. And, uh, by the way, we're, uh, I, I'm waiting for uh, Mr. DeMaio. Uh, well, so uh, let's talk about regenerative agriculture then. Why don't we do that? Yeah. You know, and if you've ever wondered what regenerative agriculture is, then you should sign up for Forefront, Ideas in Food and Farming. The final session for 2020 is on December 13th, and it's called Regenerative Agriculture, Details of a Profitable Journey. Nationally recognized North Dakota farmer and rancher Gabe Brown stands at the forefront of the regenerative agriculture movement. He's perhaps best known for helping to introduce the concept of cover crop cocktails as a key strategy for jumpstarting soil health and nourishing soil biology. Gabe's a farmer, rancher, author, and healthy food system advocate. And after four years of hail and drought, Gabe and his family took a broken, degraded, and unprofitable farm, and by following nature's principles, regenerated it into a healthy, profitable farm just teeming with life. The Forefront Sessions are free. They're online via Zoom, but you do need to sign up in advance. Go to mchenry.edu slash Forefront to register and also check out upcoming events in December, January, and next February. That's mchenry.edu slash Forefront. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. I believe we have meteorologist Rick DeMaio on the line. Rick, are you with us? Yeah, sounds good. Um, Well, the first thing I want to say, Mike, is... um, as the Beatles and John Lennon told us years ago, um, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. <laughs> he is not dying. He is not dying. And I refer to that to Donald Trump. He's not dying. He's not conceding. So turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. So uh, thank you for the words of wisdom there, Rick. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you, John. Hey, it's all, it's, we're coming up on John Lennon's 80th birthday, so perfect timing. It is shining. It is shining. So that, that's the other side of it, meaning that surrender to the void that Trump is providing us and the part that's shining is eventually on the 20th of January, we'll have Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and a whole bunch of other smart people back in the White House, right? Um, and science. And science, as Peggy says, and science. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the, the EPA is going to go through a major overhaul, isn't it? It's going to have to. Uh, it's it's been pretty much gutted. So we have to. It, it just all kinds of agencies that have been uh, just emptied out, hollowed out, and that's going to have to start yeah. uh, on day one. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, and you know, one of the one of the things that um, I sent you was a great New York Times article, hopefully you can share that with your listeners, was that one of the uh, persons that um, is the top candidates for the EPA, and also I should say the Department of, I should say the Department of the Interior, um, is a Native American. Wouldn't that be terrific? That would be excellent. That would be absolutely uh, a, a good thing. So um, uh, I'm... I got a, an email the other day as I, I sent you. Um, uh, uh, it was a Washington Post story about the polar vortex. Um, and um, 
as you explained to me, and, and I knew it from reading the story, because if you read the story, they say there is a polar vortex. It's there. It's always there, as and you said that at the same time. It's just not breaking off into chunks and coming our way anytime soon. It's staying strong up north. Right, yeah, and, and the thing about it is the polar vortex, as we refer to it in the field of long-range forecasting, PV, um, uh, it, it generally is up at about... 40, about 30 to about 40,000 feet up in the atmosphere. Uh, there's a top part to it, which is connected to the stratosphere, and there's a bottom part to it, uh, which is connected uh, to the upper levels of what's called the troposphere. Uh, the troposphere extends all the way down to the surface of the Earth, and that's where we live. We live in the troposphere. Matter of fact, the word tropo means to turn over. So the bottom part of the atmosphere is always turning over, whether or not it's getting the lower level part warmed and moist or the upper level part cooled and dry uh, depends on the tilt of the earth, the uh, position of the earth in relation to the sun. Obviously, we're talking about seasons at that point. Uh, but every once in a while, you may have bits and pieces of energy from the tropics that are related to either hurricanes, uh, tropical cyclones, or typhoons that move far enough north that actually disrupts the polar vortex. So oftentimes when we talk about these series of hurricanes or gigantic typhoons that come out of the Western Pacific, move far enough north where they can actually tap into the bottom of the stratospheric polar vortex, um, that'll actually disrupt the overall circumnavigated uh, wind speed around the North Pole, um, pinch off a piece of that cooler air, and if it happens to occur over a large landmass, uh, you can get pretty darn cold. Uh, right now, the two- to three-week forecast, it's called the wave energy flux pattern, doesn't seem to have any cross-polar vortex flow, meaning it's not going from, say, one side of the tennis court to the other from left to right. It's going basically from, uh, from tennis player to tennis player. So in other words... The, the, the ball continues to go over the net from the standpoint of long volleys. And as long as you have these long volleys going around the, um, the polar vortex, you basically keep all the cold air bottled up uh, across the northern hemisphere, I, I say across the North Pole. Every once in a while, you'll get some sort of small feature, like a large mid-latitude cyclone that happens to what we call... Um, uh, what's the best word I'm looking for here? Um, it over it overperforms. Sometimes <laughs> we'll see those after every once in a while. Um, you can get that either with the El Nino pattern, where you get huge amounts of moisture and huge amounts of thunderstorms drive northward, or you can get these you know large uh, you know typhoons coming off the Pacific that kind of undulates the flow. Um, and those are the things that meteorologists have gotten pretty good. Um, at looking at um, beyond like three to four weeks in what's called a deterministic forecast. So deterministic basically means you're determining what the weather is based on the trend of observations. What we used to do in the past, which was you would do more probabilistic forecasts, which was if you look at ocean patterns and El Ninos and La Ninas, you would say, you know, 66 out of 100 times this happened, therefore there's a 66% chance of it happening again. 
Um, and I think we're kind of getting away from that type of forecasting only because we're able to observe more of these, you know, longer trends or I say longer term, longer time scale trends. Um, and we're getting pretty good at it. Uh, the only thing that kind of makes them a little bit more difficult is when you get either a strong El Nino or a strong La Nina. Because once you begin to get the, 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 the tropical signals mixed in, whatever changes occur, the, the, the changes tend to be pretty significant. So even though we're under a, or within, I should say, a strong La Nina pattern, La Ninas only look at, and El Ninos only look at uh, ocean temperatures within 10 to 15 degrees on either side of the equator. That means there's a large part of the ocean that we're not looking at. But if you look at areas of the North Pacific right now, they're really, really warm. So that warmer body of water, I think Peg alluded to it a couple of years ago, the warm blob, um, mm-hmm. is kind Alaska. of uh, overcompensating, and I should say compensating, uh, first overcom- overcompensating second for the La Nina. That's one of the reasons why, you know, so far going into the second half of November, we have seen only a brief period of, of cold weather develop. Nonetheless, the cold weather that we had was pretty significant, and it happened at the beginning of the month. Now you're getting into the second half of the month, and all of a sudden it's warmer than normal, and you're like, okay, so whatever happened at the beginning of the month has no relevance on the rest of the winter? And, and yeah, the answer to that is yes. So in short, the polar vortex is there. It's expected to remain somewhat stable between now and maybe the first week of December, and maybe not until the middle of December do we see us breaking part of that polar vortex down uh, and getting a little bit cooler. But until then, the pattern should remain relatively at or above seasonal norms. And one of the things, as you mentioned, that we're in the warmer period, I was looking at some forecasts, and and I have to tell you, I've we've had a hard, we've had, let me put it this way, we've had a freeze in my yard, but only something, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, but only I, something. I still have things flowering, too, yeah. Yeah, Peggy says she still has things flowering. I have things that are growing. Um, our, yeah. our greens have, are still have, doing well. I'm still harvesting greens out there mm-hmm. in my backyard because we haven't Same. had a really hard freeze in this, in my own backyard. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, it's important to point out that even though we had a hard freeze, it hasn't been like two in a row. So even if it was one in a row, um, or a singular event, the, the warmer weather that we had has been able to regenerate uh, the soil. So yeah, even on my third floor deck, I have green plants still doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, I have geraniums that actually went through another bloom um, <laughs> on my front porch, and it's amazing. And and here it is, the end of you know we're we're looking at uh, we're looking at you know Thanksgiving this week. And I don't know how many people remember, but do you guys remember the weather two years ago? On on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, twenty eighteen. Do you remember what we had around here? Um, I don't believe it was very good weather. I mean, Facebook will pop that up. <laughs> we, we were we were we were under a we were under a blizzard warning, Mike. Hey. And okay, we had, we had eight to twelve inches of snow uh, from O'Hare northward oh, up yeah. into the northern suburbs. It was mainly three to four in the far south suburbs, but we basically had a heavy snow with high winds and sleet and freezing rain, and we were under one of the, one of the first blizzard warnings I could ever remember 
um, over Thanksgiving Day weekend. And even though it's, you know, it's in the 40s today and we had, you know, a nice couple of days this week, we had 66 degree weather um, on Thursday, which was phenomenal. Um, a little bit cooler during the day on Friday, but nonetheless, um, we've had enough of these warm days where even though we've been cold, the overall warmth um, has actually won out. So yeah, this is one of the this is one of the benefits of these really bizarre, highly variable patterns that we get into this time of the year. Um, and I see us getting into another spell of you know low to mid fifties maybe during the day on Thursday for Thanksgiving. Yikes! Now, where do we stand with um, moisture? Because that makes a difference too. If if we're still warm and 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 root systems are still active. They can still absorb moisture, and if there is not a lot of moisture, then you have to start paying attention. Yeah. Uh, well, so far for the month, we are at six tenths of an inch of rainfall, um, and I think all that came basically in one day. Uh, normally, we're about two and a half to two tenths of an inch, so we're about an inch and a half below normal. Um, so we're definitely below from that standpoint. And then you look at the overall yearly value. Uh, we're at 35 inches for the year. Normal is 33. But if you really look at it, Mike, since about the beginning of July, we're way below normal. From a standpoint, if you look at July, August, September, October, November, the last four months, we're probably about 50% below normal. Wow. So without a doubt, those top three, four, five inches of soil have really dried out. Um, and that's one of the reasons why... Uh, we probably had that nice of a fall because the leaves got nice and crinkly there, but then everything is now blown off. Uh, but, yeah, we're, we're definitely below normal moisture-wise. We'll probably make that up a little bit this week. Uh, nothing real significant, but it definitely seems that uh, the shortage of moisture has been not only growing here in Illinois, but also growing in the Midwest as well. Yeah, and I, you sent uh, another um, drought map. And it looks like things really are just not changing at all in terms of uh, drought conditions across the country. No, and it, in fact, they've gotten probably worse. Because if you look at areas out across the northern, uh, the northern Rockies into the central Rockies, um, they have not gotten anything in the way of any significant precipitation, even though they did get some mountain snows. But again, that, that kind of stuff basically evaporates or sublimates. Um, and I was looking at a couple of interesting uh, discussions out of some of the ag agencies down in central Illinois. And, you know, this time of the year, you can look at dry ground in two different ways. You can look at it, A, from a standpoint of, wow, you can get a lot of field work done, right? Because as long as you're not trying to get into that soil um, and the ground is either saturated or compacted, um, this type of weather actually enables you to turn over the soil two, if not three times. And you know, I go up into Wisconsin uh, once a week, and I'm amazed that I drive through those areas in southern Wisconsin. I'm like, wow, it looks like they overturned their soil again because they were able to. Uh, the bad thing, obviously, is we need some of the rain. So these farmers know that if they can get that soil you know, overturned, and get, you know, maybe three or four inches of that topsoil either aerated or you get some good rainfall, which gets that down into the four or five or six inch depth there, uh, they're doing it. So, again, it's all about knowing how to take advantage of this time of the year. Um, I know that 
a lot of uh, lawn services, tree services. This is the time of the year they're doing their pruning. Uh, they come out, they do some of the aeration. And again, if you could do aeration and get it down, you know, two, three, four more inches than you did the year before, that benefits you going into the winter season with any sort of rainfall. It's going to get down into that subsoil moisture. So in one regard, we're dry, but in another regard, uh, you take advantage of it for what it gives you. And I think any gardener knows that you're not going to get the perfect conditions year-round. Whatever Mother Nature gives you, you take advantage of it. And a good gardener and a good farmer will know how to take advantage of whatever's out there at that particular time. Yeah, uh, yesterday... Um Kathleen and I went for a walk, and I noticed that uh, all over the neighborhood, uh, people are working on their homes. I saw I saw roof work, I saw window work, I saw siding work, um, and and so I asked Chad Rig- Rigsby, who from Bartlett Tree Experts, he was on the show earlier, uh, and I meant to ask him on air, and I forgot to do it, um, but. Um, uh, I asked him uh, whether you could still plant a tree. Let's say you've got one, um, and, and um, uh, you you had it in a pot and you needed to do something with it. Um, and could you still get it in the ground? He said you probably could at this point because yeah. the, the soil's warm. Yeah, and, and, and again, not only is the soil you know warm, but it's also dry. Whatever you're trying to do from a standpoint of getting that spade in there, it may only need one or two kicks with your foot <laughs> as opposed to maybe three or four. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, why don't you uh, uh, give us uh, a forecast here, and uh, we'll, we'll wrap this up. All right. Uh, so right now, 42 degrees uh, officially. Uh, normal high for this time of year is 45. We're currently running about 8 degrees above normal for the month, which is amazing considering uh, this time last year we were running uh, literally about 12 degrees colder because we were literally about 6 to 7 degrees below normal for the month. Uh, Again, right now we're running 7.7 degrees above normal. So think about it, Mike. If we were 6.6 below normal last year and we're 7.7 above this year, that's about a 14-degree swing. That's really amazing. Yeah. Uh, again, 0. 0.67 inches of rainfall for the month. It looks like the next system will come at us probably Monday night or Tuesday. Uh, that'll give us a little bit of rain, maybe a little bit of wet snow. I know some of the stuff I sent you shows the possibility of maybe an inch and a half or two inches of wet snow uh, accumulating by early Tuesday morning. If that happens, it may be our first inch of snow of the year, and that'll be about a uh, about a week ahead of schedule. Typically around here, your first inch is about the first or second of December. But even if it does snow, it's going to mainly fall on grassy surfaces, uh, and it'll be gone by 9 o'clock because at that point, warmer air comes up northward. Uh, whatever snow does fall will turn to rain. Looks like much of the day on Tuesday, I'm thinking about a half inch maybe about three-quarters of an inch of rain on the back side of the storm system. We'll get much cooler during the day on Wednesday, but again, both days we'll see temperatures in the mid-40s. And then the next wave comes at us on Friday, but that'll actually go north of us. So during the day on Thursday for Thanksgiving, um, I expect temperatures to be close to 50, maybe even 55 degrees, and maybe staying there during the day on Friday. But even through the next um, week to 10 days, Temperatures averaging about 2 to 4 degrees above normal. Precipitation basically average only because we'll have two days 
of somewhat significant rainfall, so to say. So by the time we talk again next week, uh, which will be, what, the 29th, getting to the end of the fall season and the end of November, we'll probably finish up the month about seven degrees above normal and probably about an inch and a half of precipitation. So it'd be nice to get a couple more days of significant rain before we head into the month of December. But, but still, um, September acted like August. Um, October acted like September, and November has been acting like October. So I would not be surprised if the month of December acts like November, and we're still talking about maybe the first significant snow around here, not until about the 10th or 15th of December at this point. All right, and uh, and I will remind people if you've uh, if you planted a tree this year, make sure it's uh, it's watered in well, and if you got evergreens, you're, you're concerned about. As Rick said, we've been uh, pretty dry the second half of the year, even though we're getting uh, normal moisture right now. That means you're, it's still a deficit for those plants if you put them in the second half of the year. Uh, Rick, thank you so much. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Have a great Thanksgiving. And happy Thanksgiving, Mike, to all your, uh, to all your listeners. And the same to you. Be safe. All right. So there you have it. Um, yeah, I've got to get out and do some watering today. Uh, it's, yeah, well, we'll get some, as Rick said, uh, soon, and we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. So I think uh, let's just make sure here that, uh, okay. Um, thanks to everybody who was on the show today. Chad Rigsby from Bartlett Tree Experts, uh, Jessica Chipkin from Crate Free, Illinois, Tyler Lobdell from Food and Water Watch, Rick DeMaio, Thanks to Kayla out there. Thanks to Kathleen upstairs and downstairs and all over. She's working at her indoor farm right now. Um, <laughs> Thanks to Legata. Oh, Thanks to Basil. Yeah, okay. So uh, until next time, I guess we just say go green or... Go home. Right. Stadler? Oh, uh, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much.